Yeah, and that's that's why you can you can say very very truly Jeremiah is talking about the covenant of grace because the covenant of grace came before him, and he's also talking about its fulfillments and the one who is the substance of the covenant of grace because Abraham saw the covenant of grace, the actual covenant of grace. He saw Christ. Hebrews says that explicitly in Hebrews eleven. And so we have to take both of those. And it's really hard when you see like this really far off and everyone kind of assumes that prophets are all about the future. That's all they kind of care about is prophesying about the future. When really what they're doing is they're taking the mosaic and they're applying it to disobedience. And they're saying, but there's somebody who's coming that you've already been promised he will come. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian Theology for your listening pleasure. We are on Season 3, Promises and Fulfillments. We are doing Episode 9, the Covenant, Then I'm sorry, the New Covenant as promised in the Major Prophets. This is reflecting the Chapter 9 in the Covenant Theology book. It's written by Dr. Michael McKevy, and we will be jumping in here in a moment. And as a reminder, this book can be found in our show notes by clicking the crossway link so you can order a copy for yourself a lot of people are following along with us doing episode by episode chapter by chapter we're still in part one biblical covenants so the first 13 episodes will be dedicated to that section of the book and as a reminder other links in our show notes you're going to find one for the society of reformed podcasters which are other like-minded podcasts out there that you'll be able to enjoy listening to. And we are a member of that community. Uh, there's also a couple links to find reformed churches near you to make sure that you guys are well-fed and attending a church as you should be. So without further ado, we will jump in and we'll be talking about the new covenant as promised in the major prophets. Like, yeah, major prophets, we like them. They're better than the minor prophets. I'm just kidding. They're not better than the minor prophets. All the major prophet means is they're, they're, they're effectively longer. They're longer and they cover a little bit more history. Yeah. I mean, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily know more or, or, or a bigger deal in one way or another, but there's more context, content. Yeah, yeah much more content. This- yep. Yeah, and uh, Dr. McKelvey talks about how these three prophets, these three major prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, specifically, they're picked. There's more content based on the New Covenant explained in the Old Testament through these major prophets versus some of the minor prophets who might have a couple things to say about it. And we can talk later, like, who those minor prophets are. Yeah, so yeah, the major prophets just have longer, more extended sections on the new covenant and covenantal stuff 
in general. Like like what Nick said, doesn't mean the minor profits don't have it. They just, in comparison, ratio-wise, they don't have as much. So it's a lot easier to treat the major profits. But like you said, we'll, we'll touch on the minor profits at the end. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, too, because he he sorts by explaining each of these three major profits in a specific order that's actually not in the same order in the Bible. So in the Bible, you'll find Isaiah comes first and then Jeremiah and then Ezekiel. Yeah, but he's doing it based off the Hebrew Bible order. Yep. And then this book. Chronolo- yeah. like chronologically. Correct. Yeah. So that's where it's kind of going to. I'm glad you pointed that out because the, the order he's going in in this chapter is Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Isaiah to wrap it up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of go into it, um, let's let's catch catch up to up to this point. So we've talked about the major players in the game, uh, the major, the, the main covenants, the covenants. Um, we talked about the Adamic, then the Adamic. Norway, Adamic yes, <laughs> I've seen it here paying attention. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh huh. I, I wonder how many times I've been saying that, and you didn't. Correct. <laughs> you could, I could just imagine people in their cars or at the gym, whatever, just yelling at the top of their lungs. It's Adamic. Ah, that's fine. If they're not reformed, maybe they'll just, uh, they wouldn't know. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, we have the Adamic um, and then the Noahic and then the Abrahamic. Yep. And the Mosaic and the Davidic. Yep. And what's cool about this, and I don't mean to zip right along and we can co- catch back up and go to the <laughs> yeah. chapter, but what's cool is, in short, this is a, you see the fulfillment, but not the completeness um, explained of these previous covenants. Except there's one exception. It's the mosaic. And if you guys, oh yeah, yep, listen to the uh, episode with Dr. Clark talking about the mosaic covenant, this completely uh, echoes exactly what he was saying. Yeah. Um, and it, the new covenant is new, but it's not. It and Dr. McKelvey says this. It's not brand new. Where it's. Re- uh, erasing the previous covenants in a new concept. It's, it's actually needs those previous ones. It's, those are a necessity to explain the new covenant pointing to Christ in the old Testament, but maybe we can talk about how each of them is fulfilled in a new. Yeah. It's not new in the sense that we're getting new information necessarily, but the fulfillment is becoming clear. And so previously unknown aspects of the covenant are becoming clear, which is the newness of the new covenant in Jesus, where you actually can see, oh, this is the Messiah's name. This is precisely what he did. Where in that sense, it's new, but not new in the sense that we didn't know things were moving to this point up until the major prophets. Yeah. Yeah. They build on one another as redemptive history unfolds. Yep. And so he talks about how this chapter is to look at specific texts. So there is the first part that he really digs deep into. And when he says specific text, he goes mm-hmm. into not just these major prophets, but actual certain chapters. And a major one 
uh, within Jeremiah is Jeremiah 30 to 33, which is actually nicknamed the book of consolation. Yeah, at least this portion of it is the the book of consolation because Jeremiah is a what's called an exilic prophet. And so he's he's basically (laughs) using the Mosaic law and just whacking Israel on top of the head. It's like, you guys failed this, you guys failed this, you guys failed this. But then right basically in the middle of the book, in 30 to 33 is where that consolation came is like, even though you guys are failing this one day, this will be written on your hearts. And then you too will do this. As I'm telling you, you have to do this. Mm-hmm. So it's all, it's almost, I forget there's, there's another verse that lands right in the middle, but it's almost right smack dab in the middle of Jeremiah where the book of consolation comes. So it's, it's bookended actually by a lot of exile and th- threat, but right in the middle, you get hope. Yeah, he does have it in here. Um, maybe I'll, my eyes will catch it in a minute, but just talking about how beating them over the head multiple times, even specifically uh, the phrase days are coming yep. is mentioned 15 times during this Jeremiah 30 to 33. Yep. And, and, and it is, it refers to a positive message of the coming salvation. Yeah, 15 times throughout the book, and then five times specifically. So 30% or 33% of all the usage in Jeremiah's 52 chapters. And so of the four chapters, it takes up one third of all the times that that phrase occurs. And so you can tell that it's a, it's a pretty important phrase, specifically within, the, within these four chapters. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the who part, um, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah are going to be yeah. are the focuses of this. Uh, what is it? It's the, it's the new covenant. It's yep. in the Old Testament pointing. It's saying these covenants up to this point are pointing towards a coming Messiah who's coming from the line of David. Yep. And it will be Christ. And so we, as uh we are living on this side of the cross. We kind of have a cool advantage. I mean, we know who the Messiah <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the, the new covenant is fulfilled, but it's not yet complete. Yep. Yeah. It's, I like, there's a, I don't think he uses this metaphor, but the metaphor that I've seen used quite, quite often, and I think it's a really good one, is when you're sitting at a level plane and you're looking ahead of yourself. And you see, we'll talk, we'll say the Rockies, like right in the middle of the United States, all of these ranges of the Rockies. And so from your vantage point, so you can say from the prophet's point of view, they see the Rockies, but they don't see how extensive the Rockies go out. They just see mm-hmm. that there's a mountain range in front of them. So they see fulfillments on the front ends, which the fulfillments on the first kind of first level is Christ. But then they're also kind of looking towards those long fulfillments where they can't see the end of the mountain range, but they know that it's there. Okay. And that kind of brings this question too, um, because I don't think it's specifically described in the context of the chapter, but when we left off on the Davidic covenant um, and where we even left off in that story was mainly talking about Solomon. Yeah. uh, Yeah. What time period are we with Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah? Are they before David? Oh, they're well after. And they're all after. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
David would have been, I mean, what, 1,010 to 970 BC? And most of the prophets, if they're in exile, then they're in the 500s. Isaiah's mm. something like 700 to 600 BC. Um, Ezekiel is probably somewhere around that time period. And Jeremiah is very specifically set in the exile. Because Jeremiah also writes Lamentations, supposedly. Right. Um, and Lamentations is uh, laments that Israel is in exile and the temple has been destroyed. Yep. And that's the one book in the Bible that is in between these three yeah. Um, yeah. mentioned. Um, so what's happened is Israel has gone back into exile. They're in Babylon. And that's where the period of time we are with these prophets too. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, yeah. For Jeremiah, yeah, we're, we're somewhere there for Isaiah. There's a lot of, kind of scholarly debate on where Isaiah or falls, but I think the general kind of conservative opinion is it's probably about a hundred years before exile. Okay. Um, Jeremiah is during exile somewhere around there. And then Ezekiel is a little bit harder to nail down because there's not as much narrative in Ezekiel as there is in Jeremiah and Isaiah. Okay. And the, so the why aspect, why do these three major prophets need to, at this point in time in redemptive history, need to be explaining um, what the new covenant is going to be? Yeah. So I think what well, this is towards the end of page 193 on the covenant theology book. And it's the heading says David. Mm-hmm. And especially with Jeremiah, I think Jeremiah is a little bit more specific when it talks about the Davidic kingship. Ezekiel yeah. and Isaiah kind of assume it, and they use a little bit different words. Uh, but Jeremiah, so McKelvey begins this section saying, second, David also occurs as an inclusio or as bookends to this section. The name David referring to the Messianic king occurs once in Jeremiah 30. And then he quotes it, but they shall serve the Lord, their God, and David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. And five times in Jeremiah 33, which is the end of this, um, these three or these four chapters, assuming that the coming David, Davidic king, surrounds this book of consolation. And so, right, like uh, two sentences after this, he explains why he's bringing up David, especially as it relates to why this is being brought up for Jeremiah. And he says, this becomes especially clear when examining 33 verses 14 to 26, because it emphasizes that the covenant with David will never be broken and is a permanent fixture in God's redemptive purposes. And so he's really specifically building off the Davidic. And we talked about the conditional aspect last week with the Davidic promise to the Kings based off their obedience. And if they're obedient, then it'll go well with the people. If they're disobedient, then it'll be placed on the people as well. So this corporate aspect Kind of like what you see with Christ. His obedience is imputed to us. And Adam's disobedience is imputed to us as if we had just disobeyed with him as well. And so what Jeremiah is really pushing is he's pushing that unconditional, I will give you a king. I will give you a kingdom. And Jeremiah is saying, here it is. Got it. Yeah, it's definitely pointing towards hope. So we were talking about uh, in the last episode, the Davidic covenant. Um, after that visible earthly reign of David through those fallen kings generations after him, it, it, it seems like there's maybe no hope and uh, yeah. we don't know when that's going to be fulfilled. And then, and then these prophets come in and they say, no, 
the Davidic line, the covenant with him still stands, guys. There is a Messiah, a king of kings is coming. And I like, I like to, I, I had never thought about this up until McKelvey brought it up. On the top of page 194, the first full sentence, it says, in fact, this passage also knows the permanent character of the covenant with creation, the Noahic covenants. Right, I saw that. In 33:25, and the permanent nature of the covenant with Abraham. So he's pulling on the permanent aspects of the covenants that were given before Jeremiah. And he's saying, Jeremiah is pointing us back to those as your hope. I saw that too. And uh, I did, I did kind of make a line to point that out because I want to clarify that, ask it, talk about it because the Noahic covenant is we remember there's a, there's a element of common grace, right? So, and God said that he would never, destroy the world again through a flood. Um, so my actually question too, to kind of get through this is, is I understand the aspect of the Noahic covenant is there right now we are living in the new covenant, right? Yeah. So um, on this side of the cross there, you know, and there was, and so there is still an element of common grace from the Noahic covenant that's existing today. That's why yeah. um, unbelievers still can enjoy uh, creation. Yeah. Um, however, when the new covenant is completed, when Jesus comes back, that element of common grace from the Noahic covenant will cease to exist. Yeah, it will. Yeah. And I think if, if I'm not mistaken, what I think he's doing in this, and he, he talks about it a little bit later on, is this enduring nature of the Noahic, because the Noahic extends past the Mosaic. And the Mosaic, the legal aspect of it, stops at Christ because he fulfills all the law, the ceremonial law, the temple law, everything. And yeah. the Noahic actually gives room for this covenant, gra- uh, covenant of grace to, to take effect in the covenant people, because you need the Noahic covenant to continue this line for unbelievers to profess faith and to be part of this covenant of grace. Okay, cool. So that ironed it out for me. Yeah. So he doesn't, and I'm, I'm kind I'm a a little bit speculating based off what he says, but it makes sense contextually, I think based off of what the Noahic promises, because Noahic is all about repentance. Effectively it's, it's you extend the line of believers and unbelievers. And the hope is unbelievers repent. Yeah. But then it can also like both people, both the line of the woman and the line of the serpent can enjoy creation in some way or respects. Um, but that's, I'm, I'm a little bit speculating, but I, I think if I were to open up McKelvey's mind and be- peer between the lines, I think that's what he would say. Yeah. Because the, the seed of the woman stare, still carried on through Noah. Yep. And, but of course there's still sinners and uh, the non-elect that are coming from the line of Noah too. So there's still the sin of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is still going on, even though God hit that big reset button to take Noah to being kind of like a new Adam. Yeah. Um, And McKelvey even points out too. So we talk about the Noahic and the Mosaic. And he points out that Jeremiah 31 indicates that the new covenant, which is the one that we're talking about, 
yeah. is, quote, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which right. is straight Exodus language. Mm-hmm. My covenant that they broke was this mosaic, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And so he's saying um, that this covenant that's not brand new, but this covenant that he's going to place in their hearts is not the mosaic covenant. Because the Mosaic Covenants, if you remember from Dr. Clark, Mosaic is already imprinted on people's hearts. Yeah. That's what convicts. This was the most interesting part to me because um, you kind of look at the, 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 the covenants before this chapter and the Mosaic one gets the big asterisk yeah, because, yeah. because here's where I could see a lot of confusion, but Dr. Clark's episode helped tremendously. Um, the moral law still stands because as you read this chapter, it's written on the hearts of, yep. of man. And yeah. those 10 commandments still stand because they are written on the hearts of man by the Holy spirit, the moral law from the mosaic, the mosaic covenant still stands. However, the other aspects of the mosaic covenant are gone away with because Christ fulfilled them. Yeah. And that's, that's where when Dr. Clark and the, the chapter and I mean, reformation history, um, pulls from the, the three aspects of the law, where you have the ceremonial, you have the judicial, and you have the moral. Uh, and the moral aspect is the one that's written on our hearts. Romans 1 says that explicitly. And the ceremonial and the judicial were for Israel very specifically. Um, but yeah, Jeremiah kind of pulls some of this language altogether, which is why McKelvey makes such a big deal in Davidic, that all of these kind of coalesce in Davidic, and then the Jeremiah, what he does is he, he strikes down the people for failing the Mosaic, like he said in Jeremiah 31. But then he says, but there's a king coming who's going to do this for you. Right. And the only one in that little section we have here on page 194, McKelvey doesn't mention the Adamic um, covenant. Uh but it's not saying that it's not relevant anymore because I think the Noahic one tied to creation that we were explaining how Noah is kind of a, kind of an, a new form of Adam in a way. Uh, he didn't feel it probably didn't need to mention the Adamic one anyway. My, my guess is he would put, as I think most reformed people do, he'd put the Adamic with the mosaic because okay. the mosaic is caught. I think he says it, it's codifies the moral law. So it just means like making explicit what's already implicit. Okay, cool. So the major, the major ones that are uh, very much clearly 100% pointing towards the new covenant is the Noahic, the Abrahamic, and the Davidic. Yeah, and then what like, well, hopefully people aren't hearing us not say is the Mosaic doesn't point to Christ, but the Mosaic needs to be fulfilled in the new covenants in order for Christ to be obedient to the law. Yes. The mosaic has to be obeyed, which is what the covenant of grace promises. It, it just requires more explanation on nuances. Um, meaning we go back, Christ fulfilled the mosaic law. Christ, yep. you, you're either the law had to have been achieved. It's either by you or by Christ. And so Christ achieved the mosaic law for you. But, um, the Ten Commandments, as far as the moral law within the Mosaic Covenant, is still in existence today. That's the only part of the Mosaic Law that's still around today. And that's written on the hearts of man. Yeah, yeah. So, 
Yeah, and then uh, McKelvey goes into that. Uh, he talks about in Jeremiah 31 and 32, and this is kind of on the top of page 196, um, right after talking about the guilt. So he says um, at the top, I will cleanse, this is from Jeremiah 33, I will cleanse them from all their guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. He goes further on, and then McKelvey kind of explains this. He says, this language is repeated from the passages that directly mention the new covenants. Forgiveness of sin will lead to the fear of God, and thus God's redeeming restoration of his people will lead to their faithful obedience and worship. So you can see almost exactly what John the Baptist and Jesus pronounce in the gospels and what Paul says that Jesus gives us in Jeremiah. And so the gospel is in Jeremiah. Okay. I think this is worth asking. And even though it's not in McKelvey's chapter, it's worth asking based on it. I think we're at the first point that I can feel maybe uh, a little conflict with the dispensationalist view because they're seeing new covenant is like, okay, let's wipe our hands clean of everything before everything yeah. stopped. Now we're new covenant. And that's the only thing that matters. How can we, how could you help explain to a dispensationalist, which we could maybe explain that term for the audience, but that we believe in an overarching umbrella covenant of grace where they see one covenant start the other one's stop one start yeah. <clears throat> and the so the covenant theology book we'll actually get to this i, th I think this is chapter 27 it's way okay. later um no this is 25 chapter 25 in the covenant theology book so they'll go through it a little bit and we'll have a guest on for dispensationalism mm. um, but generally speaking and this is so if you're a dispensationalist take this with a grain of salt because i'm painting with a really broad brush um there's generally speaking seven dispensations and with each dispensation, God chooses a specific mediator and he says, Hey, fulfill this. They fail it. And then inevitably he starts a brand new covenant with a new person. They fail it. He starts a brand new covenant with another new person. And then finally with Christ, Christ fulfills the covenant, but it's in, it's not, again, this is a painting with broad brush. So forgive me, but this is, it's not the same as what you saw before. It's a brand new covenant given to Christ that he finally fulfills. And so there wouldn't be as, not as much, there wouldn't be really any continuity between what we see in the Old Testament and what you see with Christ in the New Testament, which that tends to, you tend to read the Old Testament differently when you yeah. come from a dispensationalist framework than you do a covenantal. Yeah, we can still... Um make more connections with our reformed covenant theology tying you know when you go back to even adam how there we can still trace things back to pointing towards christ and not just wipe that away yeah and i think if i mean again i'm 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 not a hundred percent sure what every dispensationalist believes but i went to a dispensationalist school um for my undergrad and so i know a little bit about what they believe and right in the middle of 196, mm -hmm. one of the things that I think trips up between dispensationalism and covenantalism is what are these promises referring to and when are they fulfilled? Oh, the temporal and the eschatology. Yeah. So that like right in the middle, this the, the paragraph of art before his heading, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, 
It says the first sentence is the portrait of renewal described in Jeremiah 30 to 33 is presented in both temporal and eschatological terms. Mm -hmm. This means that the text exhibits an anticipation of this restoration happening in the not so distant future, but also an anticipation of consummation or eschatological finality, which has clearly not happened. So in layman's terms, He's saying it's happened both near and far. Yeah. And I think what can get tripped up, again, it tends to be dispensationalists say only far versus covenantalism. Like, no, it's near and far. It's inaugurated, which if you listen to um, both Dr. Greg Beal's episode on all millennialism and Dr. Stephen Baugh's on kingdom of God, you heard about this inaugurated eschatology stuff. Yep, it's already been fulfilled and it's not yet been consummated. It's not been yet been complete, but it's already been fulfilled. Yeah, and that's that's why you can you can say very very truly Jeremiah is talking about the covenant of grace because the covenant of grace came before him and he's also talking about its fulfillments and the one who is the substance of the covenant of grace cuz yeah. Abraham saw the covenant of grace, the actual covenant of grace he saw christ hebrews says that explicitly in hebrews 11 and so we have to take both of those and it's really hard when you see like this really far off and everyone kind of assumes that prophets are all about the future that's all they kind of care about is prophesying about the future when really what they're doing is they're taking the mosaic and they're applying it to disobedience and they're saying but there's somebody who's coming that you've already been promised he will come yeah, the prophets are constantly calling them out for what they're messing up on. Yeah. Um, reminding them of history and what God's done for them. Exactly. And then also pointing them forward to Christ. Yep. Yeah. And they like, that's that's the thing where covenantal theology tends to be different, where we truly do see the prophets point to Christ, not as this, I mean, both as a distant future, but also they truly had faith in Christ because they knew a Messiah was coming to take their sins away. Mm-hmm. They couldn't name him, but they knew him. Yeah. And Which right that's now, a, that's what, that's a lot of what Jeremiah is doing. Yeah. And right now in history, right now we're looking back 2000 years ago where Christ was on the cross. Yeah. Um, yeah. Same, I, same, same faith. Yeah, exact same faith. And um, top of 197, McKelvey, I think, fleshes it out, fleshes this out better than I think I've ever read in any covenant book before. So he says the term, it's the Hebrew is chadash. So it means new or fresh. Right. And it should not be interpreted as if this new covenant were brand new. That is, that has no relation to the previous covenants. In fact, as the, co- as the context of Jeremiah 30 to 33 shows, this covenant is necessarily connected to those previous covenants. So right. he's not just looking at some brand new thing. He's like, no, this brand new thing is the fulfillment of the things that came before me. Just like that the new covenant is not like the Mosaic covenant, but it is related to it. Yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah, he says it at the very next, yeah, the very next sentence. Yep. Yeah, related to it because the mosaic administration, this fancy word typologically, which means it's a type of something, it's, it's like a shadow. If you were to watch somebody go by, 
you couldn't see the person, but you saw their shadow. That's it's like what the Old Testament calls a type. You see yep. the shadow, so you know you know the thing is there and it's pointing you towards something. Yeah. And I know as Christians, we've heard this a lot. Uh, the law is written on your heart. Your, yep. um, and so this is where it's coming from is the spirit, the Holy Spirit is written the law on your heart. And so that's the part of the Mosaic covenant that yeah. still exists. And that's where the 10 commandments come in. Cause those are still obviously um, relevant. And in fact, Jesus uh, even talked about the 10 commandments when he was explained, you know, you think that you're fulfilling them. Uh, you have no idea. <laughs> exactly. Every second yeah. of every day you're failing all 10 of them. Yeah. 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 That, yeah. That's, that's a good point. Um, and he kind of go, he goes further on too, because people can get, and I got stuck on this language for a long time where mm-hmm. Jeremiah 31 talks about people will have no need to tell their neighbor about the truth because the, they'll already have this written on their hearts and that's where McKelvey says we have to keep this distinction between the fulfillment that comes in Christ and the fulfillment that comes at the end and the consummation. And saying so that 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 your neighbors, you will not have to teach your neighbors because everybody will know the truth. They will know the gospel. Mm-hmm. That's not true until the consummation, which is why he's saying it's so crucial to keep both of these two things in tension: the fulfillment in Christ and the fulfillment to come. Ah. I'm starting to get a little bit of a distinction here, even though he doesn't explain it, but the, the post-millennialism and the amillennialism, because the post-mills will be like, let's get everyone to fully understand now before the second coming. Yeah, the, yeah, it tends to be post-millennialism, tends to be, again, there's some nuance, but it tends to be, let's set up the kingdom or get the kingdom as close to as ready as possible right now for the coming of Jesus. So he comes back to effectively an established kingdom versus all millennialism is we're between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And we are part of the kingdom already because that's the church. The church is the kingdom that's already been set up and he'll come one day and consummate it. The church won't be completed until Christ comes back. Yeah. And the kingdom is, <clears throat> and again, if you, I'll refer back to it again, if you listen to Dr. Ba's episode, he says this, this is, his entire episode and what's his life work is the church is the kingdom. You don't have to yeah. set up the kingdom because it's already here. Yeah. It's fulfilled in Christ, but it's not, it's not fully glorified and completed until Christ comes back. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, so we can move on to Jeremiah 32 as well. There's, there's some really good stuff that I think he talks about in Jeremiah yeah. 32. I just don't want to skip over anything really good. You know me, I like to highlight things. <laughs> yeah. I think we got most of Jeremiah 31. Yeah. Well, he did one more note on Jeremiah. Um, the new covenant is intimately tied to the Davidic covenant. So yeah. he, de- he keeps pointing out probably more than any, any of the others that the Davidic covenant is got a special place in the understanding of the new covenant, not yeah. saying that the Abrahamic or the Noahic isn't there because again, the Davidic wouldn't be the Davidic without the, their, the covenants before that one. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it takes those covenants and further identifies some realities and promises. And so the Davidic takes the Abrahamic and makes it towards not, towards kingship but applies kingship principles towards the abrahamic saying 
I will extend my kingdom, what God says to David, you're not going to build me anything. I'm going to build you it and extend your line, which is an Abrahamic promise. There we go. Yeah. They point to each other. They help each other out. Yep. Um, so where do you want to move on? To, dude, we're on Jer. I'm on page 198 where Jeremiah yep. 32 is. Yeah. Yeah. So 198. Yeah. Jeremiah 32. Cause he gets into some, some pretty meaty stuff with Jeremiah 32, which I think we can, we can cover pretty well. And so he begins Jeremiah 32. Um, I like this quote. It says the Lord echoes the previous promise in Jeremiah 32, 36 to 41. He echoes the promise of 31, 33, saying, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Mm. This clearly indicates the covenant being ad- addressed in Jeremiah 32 is the same covenant as found in Jeremiah 31. And where else do we find that language of I will be your God, you shall be my people? In Abraham. That's right. It's a repeated, repeated term. Yep. And so these are some of the phrases that when you see these in the covenants, the author is pointing you to something. He's not just saying, oh, this is um, a phrase that I'm using. He's, this is Abrahamic. This is covenant of grace. This is covenant of grace language. Mm-hmm. Which shows you that Jeremiah is not bringing it, like he said before, he's not bringing anything new. He's just pointing back to what's already been promised. Yeah. Uh, and then he goes on to cite Jeremiah 32 verses 39 to 41. Yep. And just to kind of add some key terms there where he says, I will give them one heart and one way. They may fear me forever. So I want to um, underline fear because even growing up, I had a hard time understanding why, how God is loving and he wants to be my father, but he t- tells me to fear him. And I was saying it for a long time in my life, like, so I'm supposed to be afraid of you. <laughs> but there is a, there is, that's not completely untrue. It's, you know, be afraid is like awe, reverence, respect, like authority, that, um, that kind of thing versus um, 100% just uh, being you know, obviously we'd be terrified of them if we saw them. <laughs> but yeah, and I think you have to distinguish between believers and non-believers. If you're a true. believer, you have like a fearful reverence right. for God. If you're a non-believer, you do fear God because he's not for you. No, and he's going to, he's judging you versus being your father. Yep, exactly. An awful reference for your father. So um, it's kind of that old thing people have heard like, you think you're in trouble now, wait until your father comes home. That kind of, term. <laughs> exactly. like, but you love your father, but you're like, Oh man, like, uh, you yeah. know, I yeah, know yeah. at the end of the day, he's going to love me, but yeah, it's yeah. a different, it's all about the relationship. Yeah. So yeah. he does in, in, in the, in that part, right after that, he talks about how he talks to us, like we're his children. Yep the good of their, of their children and, and our children and to keep the covenant going. Um, and then he's going to make sure that he implants uh, fear in our hearts towards him. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really good bridge to um, what Jeremiah 32 talks about. Uh, and he says the kind of the top of 199, like the previous covenants of the old Testament, there is also a familial aspect to the new covenant as subsequent generations will receive and benefit from this administration, God will do this for their own good 
and the good of their children after them. And so he's not saying, and he says this in, in the chapter, he's not saying I'm going to give them faith because of your children. He's right. saying they're part of this covenant because they're your children, um, which goes into why we baptize infants. And there's a huge debate between um, Baptists and Presbyterians, even though Presbyterians are right. <laughs> hey, I baptized my kid and it's more, he's, so when I baptized my child, he's entering into the covenant community. He's exactly. part of the new, new covenant. And, yeah. but, yeah. but, but individually for him and only God knows, you know, is, is he part of the elect or not? I mean, I pray all the time that he is. And I, but I, all I can do is teach him the, as far as a Christian household and as, as his father, who's a confessing Christian. And that's why he's entered in because his parents are believers. Yeah. Um, and then he kind of talks about that too. All right. There's, There's a go good by. sound effects. We got to train. <laughs> um, so he, he talks about, the covenantal aspects as well and so he he interacts with a, a baptist uh, i mean i i like i've learned a ton from this baptist theologian um peter gentry he's not not in any respects a bad theologian um but he talks about how he dismisses jeremiah 32 39 um and kind of sets up what you would call like a strong or a straw man arguments against it well it says because he'll implant faith, then we can't believe that you can baptize infants because those who baptize infants believe that that's like you're giving them faith through their baptism stuff. But he's saying exactly what you just said. There's covenantal aspects. At the end of that big kind of paragraph at the end of 199, he says the familiar aspects of the new covenant highlighted in this text shows that the covenant community will consist of those who fear the Lord and their children as with previous covenants of the Old Testament, this covenant is the heritage of the subsequent generations of God's people, but the promises of life and salvation through this covenant will either be received by faith or rejected by unbelief. Yep. And this points back to remembering Israel as God's firstborn yep. and that he had a covenant with that nation. The only time that God had an actual covenant with an actual nation and that that didn't mean that every single person that was a citizen of israel was automatically saved exactly on it on an individual aspect there needed to be repentance and coming to faith yep. so just like that like right above where you were reading says the promises of life and salvation through this covenant will either be received by faith or rejected in unbelief and i would add the little explanation per the individual yeah and that's and that's again where i think uh you have to keep that dual aspect of the fulfillment that mckelvey talks about so much in this chapter which is a really helpful thing to keep in mind when reading the prophets we're exactly that in jeremiah 31 it says well you will have no need to teach your neighbor or for your neighbor to teach you it tends to be again i'm painting with broad brush it tends to be the Baptist understanding is that is the church community right now where it's only believers who are part of the local church community and children of believers are not part of the church community because they have not professed faith yet. They tend to look at this verse and say, because of this, we can't put children in the covenant community because they don't believe. 
versus understanding in Jeremiah 31, when it talks about you will not have to teach, that's consummation language. That's eschatology language. At the end, when Jesus Christ comes and does implant um, the law on everyone's hearts perfectly and perpetually, because like precisely like what you said, as it, in Israel, there is believers and unbelievers as part of the covenant community. It's exactly the same thing today. There's both believers and unbelievers. Doesn't make the church any less than what the church is, but that's what the promise was, those dual aspects of the promise. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's spot on. It's, it's, I kind of lost what I was going to say, <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I know what you mean. And it's all and, good. Uh, yeah. So that's, and that like, that's kind of how Jeremiah 32 adds to Jeremiah 31. Mm-hmm. And, and where it concludes to is again, the book of consolation in Jeremiah reveals the richness of God's coming salvation. So it's foundational for understanding the new covenant Mm -hmm. relationship to the previous Old Testament covenants. We really hit that hit guys over the head with that. It (laughs) encourages, encourages the people that the days are coming in which the Lord will establish a better covenant. Because at that time, they're in exile. They're wondering if the Davidic covenant is still going to happen. Yeah, they think a lot of hope is gone. Yeah, they don't. They don't think it failed. They're just like, when's it going to be fulfilled for us? What's it going to look like? When are we like, going to have a king? They're they, it's, they're like, what's it going to look like? Like our conversations right now. What's the second coming of Christ going to look like? It's yeah. in. It's described in the Bible, but we don't have any idea. And I think our our minds are going to. Well, we have an educated guess of some broad stroke things, but I think we're still going to have our minds blown. Yeah, when it absolutely. actually happens. Yeah. So, um so now we move on to ezekiel ezekiel freaking love ezekiel okay so since you <laughs> love ezekiel so much i'll let you just start because <laughs> yeah. that that is it's a hard one yeah it is a hard one um and so the the big kind of theme if you guys want something so jeremiah you can think of that i will be your god you'll be my people which is the Abrahamic, which really flavors Jeremiah's promise to the people during exile, saying it's still coming. The covenant is still true. It, there still will be a day when you have a king on the throne who will rule over you in justice. So he's still promising that stuff. Um, so you can see that is like the theme of Jeremiah. Think of the theme of Ezekiel as temple. It's he describes a physical temple that's being broken down and the Lord leaving it, his presence leaving it. But also he built a temple from Ezekiel 40 to 48. Then when you actually read it, it's not a temple. You start realizing that temple is not is not a it doesn't match Leviticus and its understanding of the temple. And so you start wondering, well, what is this temple? And then Revelation. And I like how he pulls in Revelation for Ezekiel. Mm. Revelation says, you're the temple. That's oh, what Ezekiel's yeah. pointing towards. I, that's like a mic drop right there. It's like, whoa. <laughs> exactly. I'm the temple. Yep. The, I, I was at a sermon one time when Pastor John dropped that truth bomb. And it gave <laughs> me like, gives you like chills. You're like, wait, I'm the, I'm the temple? What? Yep. Yeah. First of all, I feel way unworthy and not <laughs> good for that. Yeah. And then second, like, you're just so much filled with so much gratitude and amazing and joy. Yeah. Yeah. The big thing is, yeah, God's presence in the temple 
highlights his relationship to Israel in the book yeah. of Ezekiel. And so he goes through these couple movements. So the three kind of big thematic texts of Ezekiel are Ezekiel 1 to 3. So 1, 1 to 327, 8, 1 to 10, 22, and yeah. chapter 40 to verse 1 to 48, verse 35. And big thing with this is when the spirit leaves the temple, that is Yahweh leaving the presence of Israel. He's, he's judging Israel whenever he leaves the temple. And so a lot of these things we have to keep in mind when we read a lot of the prophetic texts, especially as it relates to Ezekiel. Yeah. Um, oh, before I mention one thing, <laughs> sorry, audience, I'm going to, I, I remembered <laughs> what I was going to say earlier. Uh-huh. I promise we won't throw it off too much, but it's, um, we, after you're baptized as a baby, when you come to confession of faith, that's when you take communion. Yep. So instead of waiting to take confession of faith and being baptized older, which we still do. Huh? We you still should do. do. Presbyterians, but, let me tell you right now, <laughs> baptize freaking adults. If you haven't been baptized before, but if you have been baptized exactly. as a baby, even in the Roman Catholic Church, because it's baptized under the Trinity, yep. you, you still... When you become confession of faith, that's when you walk into finally getting uh, the wine and bread. Yeah, if we're, it's it's a big, I think, deserved um, slap in the face of us Presbyterians when we don't baptize enough adults, because it means we're not baptizing those who are outside the covenant community who are coming in. Which Baptist, you have that on us. So I'll, I'll give you that one. You guys, you guys win that one on us pretty handily. Presbyterians, we have to do a better job at baptizing adults because that's a thing Presbyterians do. You just don't see it because there's not much outside work being done. But well, there are two you're, sets. You're gonna be a pastor in about a year, so you'll have oh. firsthand, yep, excuse the pun, firsthand ability to baptize adults i'm i'm planning on baptizing adults outside the church that's gonna be cool that's gonna be great um but the bit the first big text that he goes through is actually it's ezekiel 34 um yep. which happens right before kind of the big text a lot of people know ezekiel 37 which is the valley of dry bones oh cool i'm glad you brought that up because you know what i wrote next to it Oh, John Calvin would be so happy with me. I put total depravity. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Um, so I like how he starts kind of before the Valley of Dry Bones because you're actually given a promise before Valley of Dry Bones, which makes Valley of Dry Bones possible for the dry bones no longer to be dry bones. Yeah. If you have, if you're dead with dry bones, can you do anything to build flesh? No, the no, creator can, has to do it. All you can do is either stink or decay. Both, and no, no good comes of you trying to grow. You're not going to be able to. Yep. Need, the creation cannot create. <clears throat> yeah, and we, we get the promise that the Lord will do something about these dry bones in Ezekiel 34. So towards the bottom of page 201, it says the text highlights, so Ezekiel 34 23 to 24, the text highlights the unification of God's kingship and Davidic kingship in this time of restoration, both God himself and David himself. And keep in mind, David lived 
three or 400 years before this text occurred. So he's not really talking about David. Will shepherd Israel in unified manner. Much like Jeremiah 30 to 33, this passage in Ezekiel shows that the Davidic covenant is integral to the new covenant as, and is a means of bringing about this coming salvation. Mm-hmm. And then towards the end, he shows how it echoes Ezekiel, or not Ezekiel, Jeremiah 31, 34, showing that the new covenant administration achieves the eschatological, so just, I mean, consummation, restoration of God's people to God himself. It is a restoration of life to which a previous covenants pointed. So Old Testament believes in resurrection. Yeah, and not only that, they, he mentions God states that he will make with his people a covenant of peace. Mm-hmm. And remember, when we talked about the Davidic covenant, even though David, the man of war, had a brief period of a time of peace and he wanted to build a temple, God said, no, I'm going to have your son who is going to be the man of peace to do that. Yep. So now we're pointing towards terms of the temple and peace go together. Again, right now we're part of the new covenant as believers. The church is essentially kind of like Israel Yep. and us, we are the temple. We're like a bunch of temples running around. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, but so then, then you have to implant like this term peace in the new covenant well, that's what the Holy Spirit is applying. Yep. Makes you a temple. Yeah, exactly. So um, after he, he talks on that, then he gets into, so after he establishes, I mean, after Ezekiel establishes his covenant of peace that he's echoing in Jeremiah 31, then he moves into the Valley of Dry Bones and the restoration of Israel from the nation. And so yeah. I love I love how Ezekiel first, but McKelvey also kind of points you to this movement, this very particular movement that the prophet makes going from this covenant to restoration. Are you talking about Ezekiel 37, 12 to 14? Where yeah, that's that's yeah, towards the end of Valley of Dry Bones. Yeah, that part I actually kind of want made a little note to to help me get through that because it, it it's some really cool language to get yeah. excited about but then you're a part of a bible where a lot of people are like do i take this really really literal or is this is this saying something else because he says behold i will open your graves and raise you from your graves and later he says you shall know that i am the lord when i open your graves and raise you from your graves and you're like literally that resurrection language yeah that's it's he's he's using yeah imagery for resurrection yeah he says that in the middle ish of 203 he emphasizes the hebrew term ruach which is which is spirit or wind um, or breath and how often that's used in ezekiel 37 showing you where this resurrection comes from specifically bodily resurrection coming from the spirit um, but he, again, he invokes David. So the Davidic covenant is so big for these prophets because they're all looking for a coming king to come. And there, it's uses a couple of different uh, parts of language. We'll get more into that with Isaiah before we end out. But David will be the king, the one shepherd, the prince over God's people. The promise to David is realized in the inauguration and consummation of the new covenant, which is Jeremiah 30 to 33. 
And it also says Israel will dwell in the land promised to Jacob, which is Ezekiel 37. And that's where this familial and generational language um, of God's covenant is also highlighted. And so this also brings up the Abrahamic covenant. So which is why you see all these covenants are intermixed and play with each other throughout the Old Testament, pointing you towards something's coming that's big. Mm. Which is why we say covenantal language is so pervasive throughout the Bible. And if you don't see it, it's really hard to understand what the Bible is doing. They're all ingredients for the new covenant. Exactly. Yeah. They're Uh, not in and of themselves just one. You can't just... You can't make the new covenant without having those applied to it. Yeah. And, and he uses a lot of the same, a lot of the same language, covenant of peace, everlasting covenants, um, and both expressions. And this is towards the bottom of page uh, 203. Both expressions evoke Jeremiah 32, 40 and Ezekiel 34, 25. So again, he's not bringing anything new. He's just taking what you've already been told and extending it even further. Yeah, and he wraps it up just mentioning that the message of Ezekiel shows that God's ultimate purpose in redemption is that the glory of Yahweh, which is God's presence, will dwell permanently. Yep. Remember, guys, permanently in the midst of his people. And then he points down to the middle part of the page that through him his people are resurrected spiritually and will be resurrected bodily on the last day. So that kind of points to that um, a minute ago, when I was talking about uh, Ezekiel 37 resurrection language. Remember, guys, like our physical bodies will be united with Christ as well. Yeah, and this is where he uh, he brings up Revelation 22 that uses very explicit Ezekiel language with the temple, and that a lot of the Jews, and I mean, think I mean, a lot of people today who tend to be a little bit more uh, tends to be premillennialists who look for a physical temple to come in the sacrificial system. And what Revelation 22 should tell you is, no, that's not what you should be looking for. You are the temple. That what Ezekiel is pointing towards, this temple that will dwell in the midst of his people, is a Holy Spirit dwelling in the midst of his people. That makes you the temple. That Ezekiel 40 to 48, which happens after the dry bones are resurrected in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 40 and 48 describes what you can call an eschatological temple this end times temple and this end times temple revelation 22 says is you you're that end times temple mm-hmm. you're the one that yeah jesus is building up in his image that ezekiel points towards and revelation says the church is the temple because the church is made up of the redeemed people of christ yeah not just you alone like just peter bell it's like <laughs> exactly it's all of the elect, the believers, the part of the, tr- the invisible church. Yep. And so the invisible church today will become a visible church. Yeah. Yeah. A huge visible church. Yep. Even more visible than the current visible church. Yep. You'll see everybody from time past to time future across the world, everything. You're going to be high five in believers that lived like thousands and thousands of years ago. Yep, exactly. So uh, let's, 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 uh, okay. So at the very bottom of, to wrap up uh, Ezekiel, the promises of the new covenant in the book of Ezekiel point us 
to the reality of redemption and restoration found in Jesus Christ. So we got to remember, you guys, this is all pointing to Christ both now and in the age to come. So it's the already but not yet language. Yep. And now we enter into Isaiah. I love yep. Isaiah. Isaiah, yeah, Isaiah is, is great. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, he's a guy that you can high five in heaven one day. That's right. All these yep. guys are, but I'm just <laughs> going back to, to remembering the people that will be fun to meet in heaven. And Isaiah's got amazing things to say about the coming Messiah. Do you remember how long the book of my Isaiah is? Actually, let's just ask this question. How these major prophets, how how long was it before Christ even entered the scene? Well, Isaiah would have been something like 700 years before. Yep. So guys, if you read Isaiah, sometimes you got to shake your head and be like, oh yeah, this is an Old Testament book because his language is crazy accurate with like describing Christ like he would have been right then and there. Yep. And it's a 700 years before Christ even was born. Yeah. And there's a, there's a reason why it explains Christ is because it was written by the same pen that wrote the gospels, everything else by the spirit himself, Boom. So the spirit that wrote through the apostles about Jesus and, in, and dwelt in Jesus and the Godhead dwelt in him fully. Same one wrote through Isaiah for the book of Isaiah, which is why Isaiah can predict perfectly Christ would be like. Oh, boom. That was so nice. You got to say it twice. <laughs> <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the same author. Yeah. The whole, the one of my professors last year, no, this is maybe this is fall semester last year, said the reason why the Old Testament looks so much like Christ in the New Testament is because the imprint of Christ is on the Old Testament through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's, it's gospel shaped in the Old Testament. That's it's why you can see all of these texts pointing and fulfilled in Christ is because the same spirit that inspired the New Testament inspired the Old Testament. And the spirit doesn't change. Therefore, the same message has to be the same throughout Old and New Testament. Yep. All right. So we're on the third major prophet, Isaiah. Yep. And it contains many references to the Messiah and the coming salvation of God's people. Yep. And so he breaks into two major sections. This helps really mentally grasp this. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah and then chapter 40 to 66. Yeah. So I like how he distinguishes these things is they're, they're most usually distinguished by a lot of scholars and most scholars say, which a lot of people would disagree with conservatives would disagree with. I would disagree with is they're written by two different people. Which, because they do use very different language, but it's because what McKelvey says at the top of 205 is these sections address Israel's situation both before the exile and during and after the exile. Within each section, the future hope of the people is tied to a coming figure that will bring God's salvation restoration. In Isaiah 1 through 39, it's the Davidic Messiah. In Isaiah 40 to 66, it's the servant of the Lord. And they're not two different people. He's saying these are the same exact people, different references, but it's because they hinge on a couple of chapters that, that the hopes don't switch. They just are pointed towards something very specific. Mm. Yeah, they both point to the same person, the coming Savior King. He As he establishes justice, righteousness, and equity for his people and restores creation to his harmonized order. And then he goes into, again, 
the Davidic Messiah, as the other major prophets talked about, and how Isaiah prophesizes of the coming Davidic king in Isaiah 9, uh, verses 1 through 7, and then 11, and then in uh, 16, and then uh, two passages occur in Isaiah 7 to 12 that reflect the time of the Syro-Ephraimite conflict. I <laughs> yeah. butchered that as I butcher a lot of words on here, but um, yeah, you could maybe talk about that a little bit, but how God <clears throat> would raise up a Davidic king who would righteously rule forever. Yeah, and so both so both the Davidic Messiah, so we could take these both um, as one, Davidic Messiah, and right after that comes servant of the Lord. Yeah. And so the same thing that happens with Jeremiah, where Jeremiah both prophesy, prophesies near and far, think the same thing for Isaiah. So a lot of people look at Isaiah and it's like, well, the fulfillments for um, the Emmanuel child for the virgin birth is very specific to this time and place, which people would say, yeah, absolutely it is because of the time and place that Isaiah lived. So he's prophesying for things that are coming very near, but he's also prophesying far and his far tends to be Christ. Um, where Jeremiah looks towards Christ and the consummation, Isaiah tends to look at very near, so like in his time period, but also towards Christ. And so we have to take those two things into consideration when you read Isaiah, especially with when he switches between the Davidic Messiah, so continuing on this Davidic covenantal stuff, and to the servant of the Lord later on from Isaiah 40 to 66. Mm-hmm. God states that he gives the servant himself as a covenant. So this is a reminder that covenant, the covenants come from God himself. We don't, yeah. we don't think of a covenant and then address God. He gives the servant Christ himself as a covenant to us. The servant is in the bot in the embodiment of all that the new covenant reveals. Boom. That yep. means Jesus Christ is the new covenant. And remember what boss said, we are new creation people. The covenant is the new creation. So yep. Jesus Christ is head he brings of, you into the new creation. This is the head of the new creation. Yeah. And so, and he even goes, yeah, he goes further in the second paragraph of 206 at the end. He says, in view of the servant saving work in Isaiah 53, the one who is the covenant, Isaiah 54 begins with God promising to permanently restore Israel, though he has Briefly deserted Israel like a deserting, like the deserting of a wife. This everlasting restoration is called a covenant of peace. Again, the things that we've been hearing before in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Yep. And it's all just to, to get the restoration of his people to a right standing with God, mankind, and creation. He's just resetting creation the way it was supposed to be pre-fall. Yeah. And then at the end of 206, he talks about God's covenant with creation Noah is everlasting and that he will never destroy the earth again with water. So is the new covenant of peace brought up by, by that servant of the Lord will restore God's people forever. And so again, McKelvey and Isaiah, all these prophets are hammering in. None of these promises are new that they're bringing out in their prophetic work. They're pointing you backwards, pointing you backwards, pointing you backwards and then pointing you forwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because this time he calls it an everlasting covenant. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, and he even says that it's it, it, 
that same thing is uh, expression as occurs in Jeremiah 32, 40 and Ezekiel 37, 26 in reference to the new covenant. Yep. So in the context of Isaiah 55, God's calling for people to come to him. And then he's saying, you know, incline your ear, come to me here that you yourself soul may live and I can make you with you an everlasting covenant. Yeah. And I, I like how he pointed this out too, where the name David, that's the only occurrence throughout Isaiah 40 to 66 after that being pretty much the only use of this, uh, the covenantal name uh, for the one who's coming from Isaiah one to 39 Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it says that this has been a prominent figure in the second part of Isaiah, but now in the context of God's coming salvation through the servant that he talked about in Isaiah 52 to 55, which includes, as um, you, uh, most of you guys have heard, the very, very famous part of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 with the suffering servants. Yeah. And then David is brought in in Isaiah 55. And so you're meant to see something of a connection between the suffering, the suffering servants and the coming Davidic king. Yeah, it's a reminder that the Messiah comes from the Davidic line. Yeah. But and it's not David himself. Yeah, and it's not David himself, and it comes from the Davidic line, but it goes against basically everything they thought, where they thought that the king was going to come in conquering and taking down, where uh, Isaiah is saying, no, the coming king is the sufferer. Yeah, again, this is 700 years before Christ was born. He's already saying, hey, he's a suffering servant. Um, Points to how he's going to suffer, too. Very specific details. Yeah, and he goes even further in Isaiah 61, the figure of Isaiah Isaiah 61. And if you guys have read Luke, Luke chapter 4, this is the text that Jesus quotes in his very first sermon in the temple. In the synagogue, he quotes Isaiah 61, tells the people in their hearing that this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm the one that Isaiah was looking towards. Oh, and that's when they all fell out of their chair. <laughs> that's when they're like, oh, my gosh, the Messiah is with us. They fell off their donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> they, <laughs> they fell off their donkeys. And uh, oh, yeah, Isaiah is just such a good book um yeah i I love and i I hadn't really heard of this before but i love how he connects the servants and the davidic king davidic king being the first 39 chapters generally speaking and the servant being 40 to 66 but then very specific texts that take both of those together and saying don't think these are two different people it's one yeah i mean even david i mean even God picked David out and David even was a shepherd. And then, and obviously Jesus is the shepherd of his people. So there's a lot of things pointing to each other, but Christ is the bigger, better fulfilled David. Yeah. And so um, the very last page of the chapter, page 209, he says a lot of this stuff, what you just said. Um, So there's a longer paragraph where he, talks about the, the quote-unquote so-called, so-called minor prophets and Daniel. He's saying all this, I can't, I don't have the space. And if you guys read it, there's a, there's a bunch of quotations there. Hosea, Amos, Micah, Daniel 7, Zechariah 9 to 11, Haggai 2, Joel 2, 
So there's a bunch of things. It's, like, it's not just in the major, it's also in the minor prophets, very specifically. And then he ends that section by saying, there are continuities, the continuity being the covenant of grace that lines from Genesis 1 or Genesis 3 uh, to uh, Malachi 3, I think is the last chapter of Malachi. Um, yeah. So he's saying that there's continuity in the, uh, in the covenant of grace, but there's also discontinuity. Discontinuity is how much greater is this new covenant going to be in Christ was foreshadowed in the old and realized in the new and God's salvation is essentially the same in both eras and Romans yeah. four, Paul says it explicitly eternal life by grace alone through faith alone. That has never not been the case. Yeah. Yeah. The covenant of grace has always been there uh, yep. after the fall. And so just to kind of wrap up Isaiah, I mean, he just says this perfectly, the restoration that God will bring about through his Davidic king, servant of the Lord, by means of the new covenant culminates in the new heavens and new earth at the end of Isaiah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, 65 to 66 being kind of the new heavens, new earth. Yeah, and then the, so the summary too, to kind of uh, maybe kind of start to close us out is the book of Isaiah functions together with Jeremiah and Ezekiel to reveal God's saving purposes through the coming new covenant administration. Yeah. So again, this is, this is all being written and uh, by these major prophets in the old Testament centuries before Christ. And it's revealed through old Testament co covenants from the previous old Testament covenants. Now by the major prophets showing how the new covenant will achieve God's great redemption of humanity of uh, creation through the messianic davidic king how cool is it now that we are on the other side of the cross and we know who this person is that they've been talking about for yeah. centuries in the old testament i mean we're we're two thousand years after the cross so um but we're still you know it's it's the story's still going on yeah and i, I love how mckelvey points it out and hopefully you guys hear it pretty often in this episode and the episodes previous and the ones that are to come, but we don't have a different faith. All we do is we have the name of the Messiah. We have a little bit more information, but it's, it is the same gracious savior as they had in the old Testament that they were looking forward to that we can look back on. Yep. I mean, it comes down to redemptive history is the biggest love story of all time. Yeah, he came down, he purchased us, but we have known this, the prophets knew this, and they're pointing the people towards this thing that come isn't new, it's been promised to you since Abraham. Mm -hmm. Abraham promised the new covenant, and it was truly the new covenant. It wasn't just, there's something coming, but it's not with me yet. It is, no, it is, it is there. Okay, and then um, actually kind of an off-topic, but somewhat on-topic question, too um is as reformed people and because this book is on prophets and it's in the old testament what it, what's our take on um where we are today with prophets uh, can prophets be around still because jesus is our high prophet yeah the, the the only not the only but the primary office of a prophet is revelation and because the canon closed with the end of Revelation 22, we have no more need for Revelation 
Therefore, we have no more need for prophets. We have exactly what we need for eternal eternal life. Okay. Yeah. So no more need for prophets. Yep. He's our high prophet. He is he gave us the final word. If people claim to be prophets, the assumption is what we have now is not sufficient. Mm, sorry, Joseph Smith. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. So that's, we don't need profits because we already had the best. Nice. Well, that was a great episode. And guess what, guys? You have to tell Peter and I happy birthday. This is the <laughs> one-year birthday, as we're recording, of our podcast. Yeah. So we, well, this will come out six days after our first birthday. But please, uh, please wish us a happy one-year birthday or one-year anniversary. I don't know what you would want to call it. It feels weird saying anniversary. I mean, we're two dudes. Maybe we should just say birthday podcast. But is it your birthday or my birthday? It's it's our podcast birthday. Oh, I see. So we birthed the podcast. We had the we created this podcast, <laughs> and it was uh, now it's one year in. Um, and so yeah, it was, I don't know if it's. I think it's August tenth. Is the is the day? Yeah, August tenth. Yeah, this will come out August sixteenth. So you guys will have already wished us. If you guys haven't wished us a happy birthday, please do so. Maybe for a gift you can give us would be a rating or review, or become a supporter of our show through a donation and give us a thousand dollars. That'd be not. That'd be a very good. Gift. <laughs> <laughs> no, give the thousand dollars to your church. That'd be fantastic. like a dollar. Well, cool. And then next week, you guys, we're super excited. We're going to have another guest on. And it's not a guest that I think anybody would guess that we're going to have on. We've got the Reformed Raza coming up next week. Ooh, yep. We, oh, man. They're, we're going to have to get like background beat music and that <laughs> air horn they have. I'm, um, I'm hoping they bring that on with them. Let's tell them to bring it on with them because they got some. If you guys listen to their show, they got it's almost like you're kind of like listening to music and theology at the same time. You're like, dang, this is really nice. They're way better producers than I am. I don't know what I'm doing. They do. Yeah, they're they're pretty good. And uh they you call me bad effects. You're yeah, I mean, they're good. They're good. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. uh but uh we love them. They're they're uh fellow uh reformed guys from southern california and we're just gonna chop it up with them about about uh, the next chapter in this book yeah and i'm sure we'll talk about it then but i'm i'm allowed to give little juicy details because i was i was told i was given permission but we're mm-hmm. both planting churches in santa Ana. we're planting next year hopefully and they're planting a year or two later than us in santa Ana. so we're trying for a reformed santa Ana takeover insert audience clapping sound (laughs) (laughs) here we go or the air horn that they do they do both they have all those sound effects yeah that's right yeah they're great guys so uh oh and then thursday we've got Mm -hmm. dr gary schnicker i think is how you say his last name he said it's like (laughs) saying snicks snickers but with like a shuh at the front schnicker he, he told us how to say it, and I'm sure I messed it up as soon as we started recording. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he's got Old Testament. He's the Old Testament. And he actually 
this is pretty cool. He actually goes a lot through the major prophets and talks about how the mm-hmm. major prophets use Old Testament stuff. Yeah. So you, guys get, you guys get a double dose this week. Man, you guys are going to be covenant theology experts. You're just going to be listening to this stuff. And it was a great, I'm going to use that book he talks about as references for just studying, uh, studying yeah. up on our future episodes. Whenever we talk about specific books in the Old Testament, he just goes in super in depth. Yep. So, yeah, look forward to this Thursday. We got Dr. Gary Schnicker on Old Testament, use of Old Testament. He's a professor at Cairn University in Pennsylvania. And next week, we got Reformed Rasa on the gospel. So, Covenant in the Gospels. We're super stoked to have them on. And we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And we will see you guys next week. Later. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate and review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all at once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing and, uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll, it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same sign up link or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode.